You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. This morning, we're finishing up our series in the book of Philemon. We've spent the past bunch of weeks looking at the book of Philemon, and uh, even though it's not a a very long book, there's a lot of interesting content in it that is highly valuable as we just ponder the nature of our relationship with Christ and and all that that He offers us in, uh, in the opportunity that we have to grow close to Him. And this morning, as we finish up, we're looking at verses 23 to 25, And we're going to be talking about the fact that you are never alone. And that's illustrated for us a few different ways in this portion of Scripture. So take your Bibles and turn there with me. Again, just a few brief verses that we'll be looking at, but they pack so much meaning. This is what it says, starting with Philemon, verse 23. Paul says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to come together and worship you today. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and be reminded of the fact that we are never alone. And Lord, so often in in our lives, we're we're tempted to think that we might be, but Lord, you remind us in these examples and in so many other ways that you are present with us. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak that truth to our heart today. You'd help us to understand it more in its depth and, and its application. And we thank you again for what we're able to read and study here as we look at your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever gone through a stretch of time where it seemed like you were feeling a bit more anxious than normal? You just felt more worried or more anxious or, or maybe even more nervous. I would say, in general, I don't consider myself a worrier, but on occasion I have experienced my share of sleepless nights and uh, days when my mind kept racing with what-if scenarios or was really wrestling with things like that. And it took me a long time to realize what was contributing to that. But eventually what I realized was that a major contributor to those anxious feelings, and maybe you'll notice that this is the same for you, but a major contributor for me to those anxious feelings when I was feeling those things was my pattern of keeping too much to myself and trying to do too much on my own. I noticed that within myself some years ago, and that's something I've been trying to continue to stay aware of. Human life is not meant to be lived in solitude. We've been created in the image of God, and one of the things that we know about God's nature is that for all eternity, he's existed in perfect community. A perfect eternal relationship has always existed between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord created man in his image, one of the things that he said soon after man was created was, it is not good that the man should be alone. We see that in Genesis 2.18. The Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. But sometimes in life, I think we feel very much alone. Sometimes you might make an unpopular decision based on your biblical convictions and then feel ostracized because of it. 
Uh, I've been speaking with some of our uh, the teens that are part of our church that are trying to live out their faith in their in their school context. And many of them express that as something that they wrestle with on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes you might go through a unique trial that it feels like nobody else identifies with. And so you feel alone because of that. Or maybe you've gone through seasons where you felt like your personality wasn't understood very well by others. And so developing close relationships with others seemed abnormally challenging. Or maybe someone who was part of your life during an earlier season of life has now distanced themselves from you. Or maybe someone you love has passed away. All of these experiences can cause us feeling alone. All of these experiences could cause us to feel like we're on our own. So are we alone? Have we been abandoned? Have we been forgotten? I bring all of that up because I think the devil would love for us to become convinced that we are alone in this world because he seems to take a twisted form of delight in seeing God's children forget who they are in Christ and forget that that we are never alone according to what the Lord tells us in his word. Our Lord who loves us will never abandon us, even if we've gone through seasons where we've made the mistake of treating him like he's distant or living like he's distant. And I bring that up because when Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, when he's writing these things out, we're at the conclusion of it today, but I believe he was forced to wrestle with his own feelings of loneliness. But in the midst of being in prison and in the midst of being under this home confinement that he was enduring at the time, the Lord sent multiple reminders to the Apostle Paul that he was not alone at all. And if you've been feeling alone, what I want to encourage us to do today is to please observe what God allowed Paul to see in the midst of this confinement to remind him that he was never alone. And one of the things that the Lord really clearly demonstrated to the Apostle Paul is that God sends people who are willing to suffer alongside you. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse 23. Because Paul brings one of those people up. And this isn't the only time this name has come up in Scripture, but in this portion of Scripture, as Paul's closing out this letter, he says this in verse 23. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Now, Epaphras was an interesting man. Maybe you remember who he was from when we were studying the book of Colossians, but Epaphras was the kind of person that I find personally inspiring. When I read about his life, when I see what Scripture has to say about this man, he's someone who inspires me. Years earlier, when Epaphras had first heard the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus, Epaphras returned back to the city of Colossae, where he was from, And he began sharing the gospel there. So he had heard the gospel. He got excited about the message of the gospel. He realized about, you know, just the life transformation that Jesus Christ was offering him. He received the gift of salvation and then couldn't wait to go back to his hometown and begin sharing the message of the gospel with people there who had never heard such a thing. And in the process, what he ended up doing was he helped plant and organize a local church in the city of Colossae. And it's believed that he continued to serve in pastoral leadership there for the remainder of his life. Now, in the book of Colossians, which we spent some time a few months ago looking at, when Paul makes mention of Epaphras, he tells us a few things about this guy. He tells us a few things about the way the guy carried himself and the way he lived his life. We're told that Epaphras he was the type of guy who was willing to serve other people for Christ's glory. Now, I know plenty of people that are willing to serve other people for their own glory, And in this era of social media, don't you see that every day? 
It's like, look, I just served somebody. Let me get just the right angle of myself in this context of serving. Hashtag humility, right? Epaphras was someone who, who didn't do that. You know, he wasn't like that. Epaphras was the type of guy who was willing to serve others for Christ's glory. Paul also refers to him as a faithful minister of Christ. He's faithful to the task that the Lord had given him. Faithful. Epaphras also demonstrated uh, a desire to remember others in prayer. Paul would talk about the fact that, that Epaphras would, would just continually be in prayer for the church at Colossae, for the believers there. And Paul also indicates that Epaphras was somebody who had a strong work ethic. So these are all sorts of things that are described or descriptions of Epaphras that we see elsewhere in Scripture. And he's just the type of guy that was a take-charge kind of guy who didn't sit around and wait for other people to do the hard things that needed to be done. He stepped up and he did these things, and he did it well, and he did so for Christ's glory. And the comments that Paul made, I think, also demonstrate the depth of Epaphras' faith in Christ Jesus and the love for the people that he had uh, that, that were part of his home church. And so now you have here in this conclusion of Paul's brief letter to Philemon, you have Epaphras also being referred to as his fellow prisoner. Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. That's certainly an interesting way to describe this church leader, but what did Paul mean by that? Why is he calling Epaphras his fellow prisoner as he's stating these things? Well, we don't know what happened because Scripture doesn't tell us, but it's believed that Epaphras was also imprisoned for his faithfulness to proclaiming the message of the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving culture. You have Epaphras imprisoned for doing so, and Paul acknowledges that here. And apart from Paul's brief comments in this passage, the rest of the details aren't given to us in God's Word. So we don't know the exact uh, details, the context, all of those things, but some traditions hold that Epaphras was eventually released and then traveled back to Colossae with Onesimus to hand this letter to Philemon, Tradition also holds that while he was continuing to serve in pastoral leadership in the city of Colossae, that Epaphras was eventually martyred for his faith. Johnny Cash always used to say, he always used to have a line where he would say, um, you know, I hope if I'm ever put on trial for being a Christian that there's enough evidence to convict me. Well, Epaphras was the type of guy that there was enough evidence to convict him. But, because apparently he was eventually martyred for his faith in Christ. It was no secret that he followed Jesus. It was no secret that Christ was his high priority. And Paul had a lot of respect for this man. He had a lot of respect for Epaphras because Epaphras was the kind of guy who lived his earthly life with eternity in mind. And I want us to just kind of rest on that thought for just a second before we look at some of these other details. Just imagine the quality difference it would make in your life and my life if we could say that the main way that we lived the days that we were given on this earth is that we lived our earthly life with eternity in mind. Because most people you know don't do that. Most people in your life, most people in your life are not living with eternity in mind. Most people are living with today in mind. Some people aren't even living with the end of the day in mind. They're just living with the moment in mind. And yet for us as believers in Christ, we have examples like Epaphras who demonstrate what it actually looks like to live your life with eternity in mind, thinking about the eternal ramifications for the things we commit ourselves to or the eternal ramifications for the ways in which we interact with other people or, or, the, or the ways that, that we choose to spend our time. And here with Epaphras, he was willing to face earthly threats. He was, he was willing to deal with threats to his freedom, threats to his 
His safety because he was highly aware of what Jesus had in store for him. He wasn't trying to play life overly safe because he knew he, he, that he had a mission to complete that was more important than his, his personal safety. And so he was focused on that, and he carried that through through the remainder of his life. And Epaphras, you could see, especially as the way you know, Paul is describing him in very warm terms here, he was also a comfort to Paul because he reminded Paul that, you know, as Paul was dealing with all the grief that he was dealing with, Paul was reminded as he looked at Epaphras that he's like, you know what, I'm not the only one who's willing to take big risks to see a lost world come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the type of inspiration that the Apostle Paul was able to take when he looked at a guy like Epaphras. It's like, I'm not the only one. Epaphras is willing to do it too. Paul wasn't alone in this struggle. Epaphras was willing to visit Paul when Paul was under this home imprisonment in Rome. Epaphras was willing to to get in trouble with the authorities for the same reasons that the Apostle Paul was. God had sent Paul a friend who was willing to suffer alongside him. And I think that's useful for us to observe, especially with this idea that sometimes in this world we kind of feel alone. And you wouldn't blame the Apostle Paul for kind of feeling alone when he was going through this two-year home imprisonment, this two-year confinement, that's certainly something that would make me feel a bit stir-crazy, and I would suspect that most of us would feel that way as well. But if, if you're suffering right now, if you're going through a season of suffering, if you're going through a season of difficulty, particularly if your suffering has come due to your faith in Christ and due to your obedience to his word, don't mistakenly let yourself believe that you're suffering alone. I suspect that if you look around you and just observe the hand of God at work in the lives of those that you care about, that you're going to be shown that there are other compassionate souls who are willing to suffer with you just as Jesus demonstrated his willingness to suffer for us. And Epaphras was one of those guys in the midst of the culture that Paul was in the midst of at this time. Epaphras could have just stayed at Colossae, Not like it was easy to be in Colossae and uh, be a believer, but instead, what did he do? He left Colossae to go and be with Paul for a season, and in the midst of that, ended up getting arrested himself. And so you look at that, and you see a guy who was willing to suffer alongside you. And why would anyone be willing to do that? Well, the only reason anyone would be willing to do that is because Jesus transformed their heart and caused them to see things and value things that they didn't used to value. And Epaphras, again, he was willing to look at life and see eternity. And because he saw the eternal ramifications of these things, he was like, you know what, I'm not going to play life overly safe. Can I just tell you that the older I get, the less patience I have for that mindset of playing life overly safe. That does not interest me in the least. And it makes me wonder what kind of trouble that's eventually going to get me in someday. But if that ever gets me in trouble... Remember, Epaphras visited Paul, so come and visit me, okay? And bring something snacky, because I'll probably need it. (laughs) But the point being, God sent people, and in this case, Epaphras to Paul, to remind him that there are people willing to suffer alongside you. You're not alone. You might feel like you're alone. But even if you do feel like you're alone, just open your eyes and open your ears a little bit more. and watch Watch who the Lord sends your way. You're probably going to be surprised. Something else that I think demonstrates that we're not alone when you look at this portion of Scripture is that God also sends people who are willing to work with you. I like what Paul says here when you look at verse 24 of of, uh, his letter to Philemon. He says, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, 
and Luke, my fellow workers. So he talks about Epaphras being his fellow prisoner, and here he talks about this group of people being his fellow workers because God sends people who are willing to work with you. So I don't know um, if, if you saw any news reports about this this past week, but I saw several. And I know that they share news reports of this more in northeastern Pennsylvania than they do in our part of the state. But 50 years ago, something very, very significant happened here in the state of Pennsylvania. One of the worst natural disasters to hit our state happened 50 years ago this past week. And uh, it, in particular, hit my mother's hometown of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, quite severely. If you're familiar with Hurricane Agnes that came and, and uh, hit the state in 1972. It came and it dumped an unbelievable amount of water. Instead of veering out to the sea as it worked its way up to the coast, it actually veered its way inland and kind of hovered and uh, filled up those rivers, and those rivers overflowed their banks. And an unbelievable amount of water was dropped on the region, and my mother's home city of Wilkes-Barre was inundated quite severely. The water was so deep that it reached the second story of her home. It was several feet deep on the second story of the home that she grew up in. That's a pretty... So, I mean, their basement was flooded, their first floor completely flooded up to the ceiling, and then the water was several feet deep on the second floor. It was that deep in her house. My mother had just turned 15 two weeks earlier, and in that flood, her house was nearly destroyed, but she also lost just about everything she owned. Almost everything she owned was destroyed in that flood. And while that was taking place, her older brother, uh, my uncle, was serving in the National Guard. And when the floodwaters started to recede and people were allowed to kind of go back and see what they could salvage and what they could put back together and what they could clean up, one of his superiors said to him, hey, you're from Wilkes-Barre, correct? And my uncle said, yeah, I'm I'm from Wilkes-Barre. And he told him, all right, listen, that area is destroyed. Your family's obviously going to need a lot of help. So I'm going to send you there, and I'm also going to send several people with you. So you could actually pick several people that can go with you, and I'm just going to send you guys as a group back to Wilkes-Barre to help there. And so you can imagine, and my mother has told me the story multiple times, but you can imagine how grateful my mother and my grandparents were to see my uncle and to see the guys that he was serving with show up to actually help them dig out the house and dig out the mud and take all the things that have been flooded and destroyed and start trying to put their life back together. People that were willing to work with them showed up and they were relieved. And when you look at how Paul ends this letter here, he basically tells us that he was grateful for those who were willing to share the load of the hard work of leading and serving and planting the early church. And he names them by name, the people that God had sent that were willing to work with him. He was so grateful for them. He names them by name, the men and women who worked alongside him. When you, when you, look, when you look through um, Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, you see him listing the men and women who were willing to work alongside him in the conclusions of his letters. And so he does that same sort of thing in this passage as well. And Paul wanted to acknowledge them because he knew they were gifts from God. These were people who joined together with Paul to carry a very heavy load in the midst of a very oppositional culture. And their hearts were burdened to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And so they dedicated their time, they dedicated their life, they dedicated their efforts to that task. And so Paul lists them by name. And by the way, for us living in the midst of our generation, can you say that your heart is truly burdened 
for those of our generation to come to know Jesus Christ. Does that burden your heart? If that doesn't burden your heart, one of the things I just want to encourage you to start praying for is that the Lord would develop a sensitivity in your heart to that very subject. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. It's no secret, and um, I usually resist making too much social commentary from the pulpit, but I think there's it's highly appropriate to do so this week. I will confess to you that for the, the you know, since I became aware of it, that, uh, that I have been praying for an end to abortion for uh, as soon as I understood what that was. And, um, and I, I look at our culture right now, and I look at what on one side would seem like a victory, and certainly could be, and on another side would seem like a devastation. And one of the things that I realize is that we're filled with a culture with misplaced hope. Some people think political solutions are what we bank our hope in, and it's like, no, that's not it. And other people think bodily autonomy is what we place our hope in. That's not it either. If you're going through the world experiencing hope, or a sense of hope in anything that can be changed or taken away, you don't understand the nature of real hope yet. Real hope is found in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I've been doing the past few days in particular is I've been watching news more than I typically watch news and reading things more than I I typically choose to read things related to present culture, is that those who don't know Jesus will find him, and that their hearts will be changed, that they will be radically transformed. And for us as a church, you get unique moments like this where you can show up one way or another. You could show up, you know, like on your social media or wherever the Lord gives you influence, and you could start taking victory laps and gloating. Not a good idea. Or you can show up and... uh, and say, you know what, because my heart's burdened for those who don't know Jesus, that they would know Jesus, would experience the hope that he's given me, I'm going to do my best to respond to others in a way that I think Jesus would respond to them, with the truth and with compassion, because their hope is misplaced. And when I look at the list of people here that the Apostle Paul is referencing in a portion of Scripture like this, these are people that used to have hope in cultural solutions, And then they started to realize, wait a second, our real lasting eternal hope is found in Christ. So what does it look like to be a person in the midst of a fallen culture who has great hope in Christ and then communicates that and demonstrates that to other people who don't know yet where real hope can be found? And by the way, there's even one person in this list that that at this point Paul thought he was anchored to Christ, but then it turns out his heart was really just anchored to the false promises of this world. But look at the people that Paul mentions here. He mentions this guy named Mark. Now, you probably are familiar with the name Mark if you've gone through the Scriptures, you've gone through the Gospels, and you've seen there was a Gospel named Mark. Well, this was the guy that wrote that. But Mark was someone that Paul did not initially think very highly of. In the book of Acts, you could actually see that, that Paul actually had a huge argument with Barnabas over Mark. Because at one season in Mark's life, Mark had failed to follow through on his commitments. So let's say that our church was planning a missions trip, and, um, and we have several people in our church family who are preparing for missions trips that we have now financially supported. 
And uh, one is presently in India, and one will be heading to Ukraine in a few months. And what if, in the midst of that, after putting resources together and supporting, if the people we were supporting were like, you know what, I didn't realize the Phillies were going to have a good season. I need to stay put and just watch that. Do you think you'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? Be like, well, no, like, you really are not going to get reception in, in Ukraine. You're not going to get that over there, right? Do you think you'd be like, unbelievable, right? Especially if you were also going on that trip. Be like, unbelievable. That's how Paul looked at, at, uh, at Mark. Mark was someone that initially he was a relative of Barnabas, and initially he was like, oh, yeah, I'm all in. I'm all in. Gung-ho. I can't wait. I love serving Jesus. And then when stuff got tough, Mark was like, you know what? I also have other things I have to do. I still love Jesus, but from the sidelines. And he bailed. And then he changed his mind a little bit later, and he's like, no, this time I'm going. This time I'm going. And, and, and Paul looked at him, he's like, yeah, fat chance. Go home, crybaby. And Mark was like, no, I want to go. And Barnabas was like, oh, give him a second chance. And Paul's like, listen, life's too short for this silliness. I don't have time to take your silly relative with us so he could back out again. He's not going. And Barnabas was like, give him a second chance. Where's your compassion? And Paul's like, I've got compassion, but I also have a brain. Mark's a loser. Send him home. And Barnabas was like, listen, this is irritating to me. This is my relative. And I've been serving alongside of you, and I'm telling you, he's good to go this time. And, and Paul's like, yeah, you, you say he is, but I'll believe it when I see it. He's not going with me. Final answer. I am not taking this trip with him. And Barnabas was like, okay, fine. I'll take a trip with him. And Paul's like, fine, I'll take somebody else. And so they split company over Mark. Paul could not stand Mark at one point. At one point, if you ask Paul, Paul, who on this earth are you most irritated with? He'd be like, oh, that's easy. Mark, that guy's a jerk. And, uh, and that was that. And I, I don't know that Paul ever thought that feeling would change. And then over time, what happened? Mark grew up, and Paul calmed down. Mark started keeping his commitments, and Paul started understanding this concept of mercy a little bit more as his faith matured. And when you look, so the last portion of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote was in 2 Timothy. So when you look at the end of 2 Timothy, you could see the very warm way he describes Mark in that passage. But even here in this passage... What does he describe him as? My fellow worker. This is, this is a guy I, I go to battle with. This is my bud. This is my friend, Mark. We work together. That's how he's describing him here. And it's a pretty good thing, too, because Mark eventually grew a backbone and became a key leader in the early church, and he wrote down the first gospel. The earliest gospel that was written down was the gospel of Mark. And Mark was someone that the Lord's used to have an impact on your life and my life. And so I'm grateful that the Lord didn't give up on Mark. And I'm grateful that Paul eventually came around as well. But Paul mentions a few other names as well here. He mentions Aristarchus. Aristarchus is somebody that I almost picture like a bodyguard. When the Apostle Paul was bringing a gift to Jerusalem from the other churches, so he's carrying a lot of money, for the purpose of accountability and, I think, also for the purpose of protection, Aristarchus went with Paul and traveled with him to Jerusalem with that gift. But Aristarchus also traveled with Paul when Paul had to go to Rome. And there were people that very much wanted the Apostle Paul dead. And yet Aristarchus was a guy that wasn't content to just 
hang out on the safety of the sidelines. He's like, you know what, Paul, I'll go with you. There are people that, that want you dead and might try to kill you. So now think about your safety impulses just on the inside. If you knew someone was, if you knew people were trying to kill someone that you were friends with, do you think you'd have to give some pretty clear thought to whether or not you're going to hang out with that person? Because you might get killed with them. Aristarchus was the type of guy that was like, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, even though people might try and harm you or maybe even harm me because I'm with you, I'll still go with you. Traveled with them to Jerusalem, also traveled with them to Rome. Paul also mentions Demas. Demas got off to a really good start, seemed very committed to gospel ministry, but eventually he abandoned the work, and he demonstrated, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.10, that Demas loved the things of this world more than he loved the Lord. So the pull of the things of this world got to Demas's heart and mind, and he demonstrated he loved the things of this world more than he loved the Lord. But Paul also lists here Luke. Luke was a physician. Luke was a historian who traveled with Paul. He cared for Paul's medical needs on these journeys and in his imprisonments. And eventually, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the, uh, the book of Acts. And by the way, most people, when they look at the New Testament, they think the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament, if you break it down into individual books, yeah, Paul wrote the most individual books, but some of them are short, like Philemon, and that still counts as one, right? But it's one page. If you actually look at the pages of your New Testament, the guy who wrote the most pages of the New Testament is actually Luke, because Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is very long, and he also wrote the book of Acts, which is also another long book. The most pages of the New Testament were written down by Luke. So isn't it interesting that Mark and Luke, two of the major New Testament writers, traveled with and worked with the Apostle Paul, and he acknowledges them both in the conclusion of this letter. And I love reading about these people because it's a great reminder of how the Lord accomplishes his work in this world. He doesn't send us out into his mission field to do everything alone. He joins us together in his son, Jesus Christ, then he makes us one body, unites us together in the task that he entrusts to us in the midst of the generation that we're, that we're living in. And I have to tell you, one of the greatest joys that I, have been, that I have been blessed to experience in my years of serving in pastoral ministry are the people that I get the opportunity to serve alongside with. It's honestly one of my favorite facets of ministry. And I have to tell you, one of the weeks during the year where that gets demonstrated most clearly in our church family is this week, Kids Camp Week, where all week long you have people pitching in and, and helping out and serving and working together all throughout the course of the week. It's very visible. And here you have, as one of these reminders that, look, Paul, you're not alone. God sends people who are willing to work with you. You see Paul seeing that and acknowledging that in, the, in this verse. But one other thing he, bo- he points out in this portion, portion of Scripture, excuse me, You see in verse 25, and that's this, that God sent his son who has promised to never leave you. So if you're ever feeling alone in this world, keep in mind what the scripture says in Philemon verse 25. Paul says it this way as he ends the book. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So we praise God for the people that he sends that are willing to suffer with us. We praise God for the people that he sends that are willing to work alongside us. But no one surpasses the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are never alone because he has promised to remain with us forever. And I love what he tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. 
And Jesus says here, this is prior to his ascension back to heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus is saying that before he ascends to heaven. So the natural response when you see him ascending to heaven is to think, well, I guess he left. I guess he's gone now, right? He left. But what he's saying here is what? No, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us right now. Jesus is present with us in this room. And the Apostle Paul was even referencing this here. As he's saying to Philemon, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul was telling Philemon that the grace of Jesus would be with him. The grace of Jesus would be with his spirit. The grace of Christ, by the way, is his holy, unmerited favor. And it's seen in the, in the delight that he expresses as he blesses us beyond anything we deserve. And when I think about the many blessings of Jesus that I have received over the course of my life, and I'm sure that you could think about the many blessings from Jesus that you have received during the course of your life, I can personally testify to the fact that I did not deserve any of them. I don't even deserve his promise to be with me always, like he promises in Matthew chapter 28, because I can think of multiple seasons of my life where I was far from making him the priority. I was busy doing my own thing. I was not prioritizing my walk with him. And yet he's faithful to what he says. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always. Not I'm with you sometimes. Not I'm with you conditionally. Not I'm with you in your high moments, but in your low moments I bail. He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age, even during those unfortunate low seasons where we might not be prioritizing our walk with him. And he woos us back to him. And I'm grateful that in the the midst of my lowest or in the midst of my most confused seasons, that Jesus didn't leave me. He walked with me. He pointed me in the right direction. He reminded me that his love for me wasn't based on my ability to get everything right. Because his love is based on his faithfulness. His love is based on his unchanging nature. Not on my ability on any given moment to earn his favor. Because I can't earn his favor. And neither can you. And when you look at this brief letter from Paul to Philemon, you find a very vivid, and I hope you caught it as we were working our way through this book, but you find a very vivid illustration of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Think about the message of this entire book as we've been looking at it. Like Onesimus, we were slaves. We were slaves to sin. We were living under the fear of death and condemnation. But just as Paul encouraged Philemon to demonstrate grace and mercy to Onesimus, we too have been the recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Onesimus once ran from Philemon, but now he was coming back to him. We too once ran from Jesus, but now the Holy Spirit implores us to draw near to him and find mercy. And as Onesimus owed Philemon a debt that he was incapable of paying, so too were we spiritual debtors with a debt we were incapable of paying. And as Paul illustrated when he offered to pay whatever Onesimus owed, and he made himself legally responsible for the debts of Onesimus, so too has Jesus taken our debt upon himself, and he satisfied it completely. Our debt has been paid. Our condemnation has been cleared. We are no longer slaves, but are received by Jesus as family. 
The heart of the gospel was put on full display in this brief one-page letter from Paul to Philemon. Are you able to see, and were you able to see as we were working our way through this book, the unique circumstances between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, and the ways in which the Lord was helping us to, to understand the gospel with more clarity because of those things? I think it's fascinating how just in that one letter you could see our condition our condemnation, our slavery, and the liberty and freedom that we've been granted through Jesus Christ as it's illustrated through the lives of these men. So with that in mind, let me say this as we finish up today. As you face each day, remember that the Lord has you on his mind. In Christ, you are a new creation. You are no longer who you used to be. He has promised to never leave you. He has promised to never forsake you. And I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit's inspiration of this letter that gives us a very vivid and a very powerful reminder of all Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, and it produces gratefulness in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it's been to be able to look at this book and to think about the things that you're revealing to us in it. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that as we see what you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down in this letter to Philemon, and we see the things that occurred in Philemon's life, the things that occurred in Onesimus's life, the things that occurred in Paul's life. Lord, we're just grateful for the fact that we could look at this, this story, we could look at this example and be reminded that we are never alone. You are present with us, and you are accomplishing miraculous things all around us. And Lord, most miraculous, we could say, is our salvation, the fact that you took people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, and you made us alive in your Son, Jesus Christ, your Son who came to this earth and took our condemnation upon himself at the cross, he who had no sin, who bore our sin, so that we could live sinlessly, as men and women who are completely forgiven. He who rose from the grave so that we could rise from death and live forever through our union with him. Father, we're grateful for these things. And again, we're we're grateful for the fact that the example of what was taking place in the lives of these men in this passage of Scripture point us directly to what your son Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. So again, Lord, in the midst of the things that we wrestle with, in the midst of our day-to-day life, in the midst of trials that come our way or things that really exhaust us or test us, we pray that we would be reminded of the fact that we we have not been abandoned. We are not alone in the midst of this fallen world. You are with us and you are our hope. And Lord, right now in particular, we know, Lord, that this is a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful season for the church to show up in a real special way. Those of us who are grateful for some of the things that we have seen your hand accomplish as of late, we pray that our gratefulness would be expressed in humility. We pray that our gratefulness would be expressed in such a way that we do what your scripture tells us to do, to give a reason for the hope that we have, because we live in the midst of a world that's been searching for hope through things that cannot give them hope. And since we have hope, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be stingy with it. We pray that we would be generous with what you've been generous toward us. Lord, that we would share the hope that we have with others, that we would glorify your name, and that others would come to know 
the new life that, that, that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, that they would experience it as well. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for all these things that you demonstrate to us. And thank you for the power of prayer that we could come before you with these things and know that you hear us and you answer in accordance with your will and in your time. So, Lord, we pray that we would remember that we are a new creation in your son, Jesus Christ. And again, we thank you for the privilege that you've given us to be able to study this book, the book of Philemon, together over the course of the the past couple months. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.